0: Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This podcast is sponsored in honor of Andrew of Vadia Hilya. on the occasion of his 40th birthday by his daughters, Mayani, Dori, and Nushi.
1: Tonight, I'm actually talking about 12 different prophets. We spoke about one prophet per week. That's been our pace so far, and one book, a prophet, and their sefer and their book. But tonight, I'm actually going to talk about 12 different books, and each of those books is named after a particular personality, a particular identity, a particular spiritual giant of the prophetic tradition and so uh, just as a prelude you are aware that i can only really spend about five minutes max on each of them by the time we delve into a bit of historical background to just ground the whole thing i can really only spend just a few minutes so i have to emphasize at the start that each of these people we're going to talk about are immense they are immense They are huge, they didn't make it into the Tanakh, into the Hebrew Bible, by being figures from the comic books. They really, really are enormous spiritual giants. And so it's kind of, it's a massive chutzpah to talk about them in just a few minutes each, but we have this grouping, which we call the Tre Asar, which are the 12, sometimes you'll see it referred to as the 12 minor prophets, and there's nothing minor about them, they're only called minor because their books are shorter, And because they're minor in relation to the three big daddy prophets that we looked at. And I'll remind us of that because when we look at the group of the Treyasar, the group of the 12, who are much less known, as much as we think we don't know about Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel, We know even less about these prophets because there are less haftarot from them, because they are less studied, because they are less exposed. But they are enormous, and therefore we need to give them due consideration. What I want to do is do it that timeline, but that timeline tonight, I'm going to call this minus 500. So that's 2,500 years ago, approx. And this is going to be called minus 800. That's 800 BCE, 700, 600. And what this now allows us to do, if we look at the 300 years, really, that we're looking at the enormous prophetic tradition of Israel, and I'll mention this point just one more time. I mentioned it in the very beginning, but I want to say it just one more time. Is that, because it really is quite astounding, is that it was from the year minus 500, from around 500 BCE, that the world began to undergo some kind of spiritual-intellectual transformation. If you look at the following century from here, all over the world, there are huge ideological and spiritual changes happening. This is the golden age of Greek philosophy. This is the time of the Buddha. This is the time of Confucius. This is the time of Zoroaster. So everywhere ideas spiritual outlooks are being transformed so the big question is ah but the the jews where is their transformation i mean the jewish people kind of like to pride themselves on being at the forefront of any major intellectual or spiritual shift in the world but where were we and the answer of course is that we had already had our massive spiritual transformation in the preceding two centuries if anything Some clever conspiracy theorists could even surmise that we kicked off the whole thing. If you want to, you'd probably read about that in the AJN if it was being printed there. (laughs) So I want to look at this 300 year span. And just to ground us in what we've already done so that we can see it all in context. Here's the three we looked at already because I refer to them as the Big Daddy Prophets. That's not an official term used in scholasticism, but it's my turn, the Big Daddy Prophets. And what we find is we've got here is Isaiah. Here is Yishayahu. That's the whole story we looked at with King Hezekiah and with the massive expansion of the Assyrian Empire and the way that Jerusalem was delivered on that occasion. That really is this momentous historical events that happened there after which were kind of the Jewish people because the greater Israel was vanquished. We looked in the second week, we looked at Jeremiah, we looked at Jeremiah, Jeremiah is here, like a century later, and he's in the kingdom of Judah, and it's on the verge of destruction. Yes, it's true, he lives through the downfall of the the Assyrians, but he sees the rise of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians, and their eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which happens here. And then, as we looked last week, an entire wave of the population, most of the elite, are taken into exile to Babylon, where the prophet Ezekiel finds himself and has his visions of God and his spiritual insights there, meaning that prophecy continued in exile. So Ezekiel is here. And what we're going to find is that the prophets, the 12 prophets who span this entire era, actually go from before Isaiah all the way up to here well after Ezekiel it is almost a 300 year project and in order to really ground that we need to we need to look at what's going on what's going on in the land of Israel which is the homeland of the Jewish people always has been and certainly was then because there's no diaspora yet even to speak of. What is happening in the 8th century in Israel? How have we evolved and where are we? And when we talk about these things, it is not the case that we can simply construct that world from reading the Bible. It is in fact the case that the Bible, the Tanakh, is a very, very important source, but not our only source for understanding what's going on. Because by the time we are in the eighth century, everything we're going to discuss historically is verified with kind of counter narratives in Assyrian and Babylonian and chronicles. We have, a, and the archeological research that has been done on this period is already deeply extensive especially in the last 50, 60 years in Israel. So we have kind of a picture of what's going on. And what happens is this. By the time you get to here, well, I say the words, by the time you get to here, right? But maybe, maybe that's flying over the heads of a few people. They're not seeing the wings. I just need to recap what I mean by the words, by the time we get to here. You would recall that a couple of centuries before in around the year minus 1000 which clearly is not on the board but round about where my hand is is round about minus 1000 and what happened in minus 1000 was that the 12 tribes of this collective called Israel with a shared mythology and a shared understanding of who they were and once again, in this particular phase, we're still kind of in the proto-historical. So here we are relying on biblical narrative as the Genesis charter, if you like, for how the people of Israel come into being. But there's no question that by the time they're here, they are a, this Semitic nation is a presence and they are a collective, a federation of 12 tribes that are united in a monarchy. And they're only united for two or three generations. This picture we have of the great kingdom of Israel, the united kingdom of Israel lasted only for basically three generations. After the big Davidic king Solomon, that confederation, that united kingdom became split. And in the north... Ten of the tribes had formed their own kingdom called the Kingdom of Israel. And two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, with Jerusalem as their capital, formed the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, until here, for the last century and a half, more than the last century since Solomon's death, basically these two kingdoms had been acting in parallel. But there was a fundamental difference between the two. They, sometimes they fought with each other. Sometimes they actually made deals with each other. They had peace with each other. Sometimes they simply ignored each other. But there's a fundamental difference between the two if we look at their political structures. The southern kingdom was much more stable because it had the Davidic succession. So you always knew who was going to be king. It's either going to be the son or grandson or nephew or someone of the present king. There is a dynasty. But in the north, it wasn't like that at all. The north, which was set up by a guy called Yeruv Am Ben Nevat, Jeroboam, famous is not a champagne bottle, it is in fact a person in the Bible, was the first king of the northern kingdom, set up. A structure that really had no inherent transmission of power and yes he tried to bequeath the kingdom onto his son but that didn't last long and for the first almost a century of the northern kingdom the kingship was decided effectively by violent assassination or a general would effect a coup those of us who were sitting here thinking Oh my gosh I'm glad I don't live in that world should know that many many countries are still as inherently unstable and that any moment a general with a revolutionary cell can rise up take power in a military coup and he becomes the king this is the story today in many countries and so it was then and it wasn't until the middle of the ninth century that a very big guy, a very big general, took power, a guy called Omri. And Omri pronounced himself as king and established the first dynasty of the northern kingdom, the house of Omri. One important thing to remember is that when Jeroboam had set up the northern kingdom, he couldn't have his own separate kingdom going, but people were still going to Jerusalem for their spiritual fulfillment. He had to create his own spiritual centers. And importantly, the two most important centers he set up were at Dan in the north and Bet El in the south. We sometimes think of Bet El as being in Yehudah, but in fact it was in Ephraim because the had captured it. And at each of those holy places, at each of those spiritual centres, there were a couple of others, One calls also called Gilgal, was also a spiritual centre. But at Dan and El, he had set up two foci of worship. Now, everything I'm about to say—it's a bit startling—but people should remember that the official religion in the Northern Kingdom was still the religion of Israel. It was the God of Israel that you were worshipping. The big difference was how you worship it. At bet El-Jeroboam had set up two golden calves. And they were not considered foreign idolatry. They were actually kind of a Jewish idolatry. And they represented the God of Israel. It is astonishing for us because very few people ask the question... Uh, hmm. uh, d- didn't they read the book of Exodus and see what happens to people who worship the golden calf that is a very very complex que- The question simple but the answers are very complex however needless to say and for another time but needless to say here we have golden calves and at Gilgal we've got some kind of like trippy druid stone circle thing that people are getting into but it's all part of the God of Israel worship now that's fine. Well, not fine, but you know, ba-boom, ba-boom, it chuffs along, right? God, actually, interestingly enough, many of the prophets did not castigate Israel because of these golden calves and things. You don't find too much mention of it. It's mentioned a lot in Sefer and Melachim, in the Book of Kings, as each king who didn't destroy it is considered wicked, but the prophets were not castigating it because it wasn't really considered internally in Israel necessarily as an abandonment of the God of Israel. The God of Israel was actually much more concerned with how people were behaving. Fine, you want to go and, you know, if you think that's me, fine, whatever. But that changed. That changed with the house of Omri. When Omri came to the throne, he had a much greater idea about syncretism and alliances with many of the nations surrounding to the extent that he married off his son, who was going to become king, a man called Ahav, who we know as Ahab in English, not chasing whales, but in fact a king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He married him off to a Phoenician princess called Izebel, Jezebel. And Jezebel and Ahav set about infusing the northern kingdom with a new type of spiritual discourse, if we could call it that. It was, in fact, a very, very fashionable pagan mythology and idol worship that in Phoenicia was certainly big, and we know that today as Baal. Baal is not simply some word in Tanakh. There is an entire discourse about Baal. Baal started as a storm god. And he had all sorts of different properties and qualities. And we see many, many aspects of the way Baal was worshipped in distinction to how the God of Israel was worshipped. Right throughout Tanakh, Baal was a big problem for Israel. It was a very, very seductive cult. But the one thing that Baal, of course, was never talking about was ethics and morality and justice. That was particularly the province of the God of Israel. We know a lot about Ahav and Izebel's work in infusing the Baalist cult throughout the north of Israel because they, their main antagonist, the, in other words, the person through whom Their greatest criticism flowed was, of course, the most famous prophet in the whole Bible after Moshe, who does not actually even have his own book. And he became the proto prophet. And I am, of course, talking about Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. Elijah took on Ahav and Ezebel completely and effectively. Caused the destruction of the Omri dynasty. Eliyahu told his disciple Elisha. To anoint someone. Who would bring down the Omri dynasty. Elisha didn't end up doing that job. It's a very interesting thing. And he gave it to someone else. The Tanakh doesn't tell us who he gave that job to. Of anointing this particular individual that would bring down the entire house of omri but the rabbis tell us that the young prophet that was appointed by elisha who'd been appointed by Eliyahu, who was in fact no nice guess but not quite it was in fact yonah ben amitai who we will look at the prophet jonah that's midrash we'll just leave that there who was the individual anointed by elijah and elisha to bring down the house of Omri in the northern kingdom? No, it was not. It was, in fact, someone who. Who said that? namientes. It was, in fact, exactly as this gentleman said the biggest genocidal psychopath in the whole of the Bible, Yehu. Who in English would read Jehu? Yehu killed everyone. Conversations with Yehu were very, very short. Hi, Yehu. Hi. <coughs> he killed the king of Israel. He killed the king of Yehuda, who was visiting him. He killed Izebel He killed hundreds of prophets of Baal. He killed all of the royal family. He killed all the cousins of the royal family. He smiced and slaughtered his way in blood right throughout the whole of the northern kingdom. And he wiped out all of the Baalist influence politically and socially. Read about it. They were war crimes, many of the things he did. That's not me, some silly lefty, saying that now. The prophets themselves referred to them as war crimes. But he did his job extremely effectively. And what is interesting is that he then sets up his own dynasty for the next four generations. And that dynasty kind of reverts away from Baal back to the glory days of the northern kingdom under Jeroboam such that by the time you get to the fourth generation of the yehu dynasty which is here this first half of this century here is really the kingship of the fourth generation of the yehu dynasty so that all of that goes to explain when i say the words by the time we get to now and to slice it all together the guy who is on the throne as the fourth generation of the yehu dynasty is to signify that they had gone back to that original idea is of course jeroboam the second so he's like 200 years after the first jeroboam but they're now coming back so we've got the nice big nice golden calf worship we've got a god of israel it's all happening to slice it all together Jeroboam the second is sitting on the throne of Israel around the same time that Uzziah is sitting on the southern kingdom's throne, on the kingdom of Judah. And you would remember Uzziah because we began, when we talked about Isaiah in the very first week, we talked about the fact that Isaiah begins his prophecy, Bishnat Mot HaMelech in the year of the death of King Uzziah, who, if you recall, had turned leprous. And that whole shared kingship he had with your tongue that we learned about in the first week. The... Period of Am Hasheni, Jeroboam II and here is—if you sleep right throughout this talk, but only wake up at intermittent moments where you think it's important—this is one of those important moments. Am Hasheni is sitting on the throne of the northern kingdom for many decades, about four decades. I mean, the guy's got—you know—40 to 50-year rule. It's a very, very solid rule, and during his time. Things are very stable. We also know that Uzziah sat on the throne of Yehuda for a long, long time, and things were stable there. So this was a period of stability. And the Assyrians, who we're going to look at in the second half of this century, once Tiglat Pileser and these other guys, and Shal-Mneser, these guys get going, but back here, the Assyrians had been too busy dealing with their own internal wars as they expanded. So not only was it stable, it was peaceful, and it was prosperous. Cashing in on the last century, since the Omri household of all these different commercial and trade networks that the northern kingdom had made. The southern kingdom also went through a period of relative prosperity, but really they were kind of just getting the benefit of what was going on in the north. Samaria was a breadbasket for the whole of the Middle East, it was incredibly fertile. They also find themselves between Egypt and the nascent Neo Assyrian Empire. They're selling wine, they're selling oil, olive oil. They're very, very well placed. They've got Phoenician contacts to the north. And Jeroboam and Uzziah are strong kings. So they're not worried about any of the minor nations around here. They are the power in the region. And it's very important to understand that it is precisely at that point time of economic prosperity that a real decay had begun, not just begun, was now in full flow of setting in to the society. Everybody was in the pursuit of materialism and assets and money and wealth and power at the complete expense of huge numbers of people that were oppressed and exploited there was very very little justice that you didn't pay for there were very very little social amenities for people that were not partaking for whatever reason in this glory economic period The armies were also strong. They were able to fend off any threats at this stage. But it was a time of serious moral decay. And it is during that period that the whole project of what we know as the prophetic tradition of Israel, this massive transformation that's about to take place, arises with the first of those Nevi'im although as we will see he wasn't necessarily technically the first chronologically but he is the first mentioned in the treasa of the 12 prophets we're going to look at and everything i've told you just now is really just so i can start the talk the 12 prophets of israel don't cheat (laughs) this is the first one the first one that we have and even though he's not chronologically first he is placed first He could claim to be around the time of the first, but the first is actually going to be the third one, Amos. But the first one in the Treyasar is there because the rabbis tell us, and those were the dudes responsible for deciding what books in what order and what's in and what's not. They are the ones that tell us that this prophet is (coughs) the greatest of all the prophets even though his book is much shorter than many of the others. It's only 14 chapters, and some of those chapters are quite small. You could probably read the entire book in about 20 minutes. And, of course, I'm talking about Hosea.
0: You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. Your support can really make a difference. If you enjoy these lectures, please consider rating or reviewing this podcast, or simply telling others who may be interested. Now, let's get back to the lecture. When
1: you sit there on Shabbat Shuvah before Yom Kippur and you read, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, because you have stumbled in your iniquity. Don't say, oh, okay, that's Hazaiah. He must have been some prophet somewhere, sometime, some holy dude. This man has a phenomenal historical context. He's in the Northern Kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II. And remember when we looked at Jeremiah, when we Isaiah as well, and we looked at Ezekiel and we talked about how their careers were not just to speak the words of God, but to live them as metaphors. And I said at the time that Jeremiah was given some very difficult performance pieces and Ezekiel was certainly given some very difficult performance pieces you remember we spoke about that no one gets a performance piece like Hosea because God comes to this holy man and he says to him I want you to find the most wanton promiscuous woman that you can and I want you to marry her and he does he finds a woman who is unbelievable and if the rabbis even I won't go into it here because it's actually kind of there's it's kind of three or four places in the whole of Midrash where the rabbis actually make a seriously dirty joke but they even <laughs> they even make fun of her name and he marries her and she's constantly running away to her lovers and he's constantly bringing her back and she ends up having three kids and god tells her she has to name those children he tells her the names of what the children would be which are reflective of the situation that is going on in israel the first one the first child is called israel after the Jezreel Valley, because that's where Yehu had done this horrendous slaughter. And as we will see later on, the ends never justify the means. The ends never justify means, means determine ends. If you set up a society a certain way, it will be that way. It will reflect how you set it up. The second child, which is a girl, is called Loruhama. Loruhama, not mercied. In other words, Israel had gone so far into its depravity, away from the true calling of its purpose, that it would lost mercy. And the third child, which Hoshea is not even sure is his, is called, and it's devastating when you read it, because if you're reading Hosea and you don't know what's about to happen to the Northern Kingdom, God says, the third child you will call, Lo-Ami, not my people. Of course, in the second chapter, Hosea, just like Yeshayahu, flips and gives us a vision of what the true relationship should be. Now we understand what this is. Hoshea is in the is in the personage within that metaphor of God and God's relationship with Israel and Israel is the promiscuous and unfaithful wife. And that's not how it needs to be, says Hoshea, because in fact, why did I choose this metaphor? Why did I choose to discuss my relationship with you in these terms? so that you can understand the true spirit I want you to have. I want a situation where I betroth you to me forever with righteousness and with justice and with kindness and with mercy I will betroth you with faith Via Da'at et Hashem, and you will know God. I want a situation where you no longer call me my husband. It's very modern, Hosea. You won't call me my husband, you will call me my man. It is a stunning insight. Into the whole psychology of relationships i don't want you to be doing things for me religiously because they are the commandments you've got to follow i want a true authentic genuine loving relationship with the people that i have chosen to take through history unfortunately that ain't going to happen with the northern kingdom I mean, you read Hosea; it's pretty horrendous. At one point, he actually has to go and buy her back from some pimp that is controlling her. I mean, so I said, everything you read in kind of social literature, it's just unbelievable. And ch- chapter 6 of Hoshea contains one of those sentences that is really kind of the summary of everything that these prophets are trying to effect at this stage to make people realize that God is not... And the God of Israel, who is the God of the whole world, is not a mechanical neutral force that you do rituals or you say certain prayers and then God will do X, Y, or Z. It doesn't work like that. I desired kindness, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God over burnt offerings. People don't realize that the whole of the prophetic tradition at this stage is anti-establishment and it is anti-sacrifice because the whole religion has got out of focus. People think that the rituals are the main thing. Hosea even tells us that there will come a time for many, many years where you will not be able to bring sacrifices and you will have to use words. Your words will come from the heart. And of course, the famous, as I quoted before, Shuvah Yisrael Shem Elokecha. I can't talk anymore about Hosea, but there is a reason the rabbis put Hosea as the first of the Tre Asar. He is a giant and his Hebrew is stunning. For those of you who can access him in the Hebrew, if I find you're reading it in any other language, I will personally come around and beat you up. <laughs> except, of course, to understand certain difficult words or to get, compare translations to see how bad they all are. Although there's a couple that are all right. There's a couple that are all right. The next prophet in the Treyasar, I have to tell you, I'm going to, be, I'm going to level with you and be honest with you, is that the rabbis have put him there at number two and on the level of message, deservedly, but we don't really know. And there is an attempt here to produce, in the ordering of the Treasa a definite historical arc. But we don't know if the prophet Yoel, who is kind of placed here, is really there in terms of when he was written. We do not know when Yoel, Joel, in English, was written. It's a short book. It's four chapters. And probably the most striking thing about it, when you see it, is the fact that he is talking in the very first chapter already, about this tremendous devastation that's going to come upon the land in the form of waves of locusts. And there are, in fact, going to be four different types of locusts that are going to come in four different ways. So obviously, since then, scholars have been saying, oh, oh, does that mean that they're real locusts? Because the way he describes them is, you can imagine, and in the Middle East you get these phenomenal locust waves, and the way he describes it, it's pretty clear that he has some exposure or knowledge of that. Or is it a metaphor for the great waves of empires and armies that are going to come and devastate the land? Either way, the essential message of Yoel and why they place it between Hosea and Amos is because Yoel is speaking about the very thing that Hosea has ended off speaking about, which is the concept of Teshuvah. He uses this parable of the locusts because he describes that the people will get together and the king or whoever is the leadership will cause a great big day of fasting and repentance to avoid the catastrophe of the locusts. But Yoel tells them it's just not enough you sit there and you fast and you wail and you wear sackcloth and ashes and you cry out to god to avoid the devastation but you've actually got it wrong i want you to imagine i want you to imagine what it takes for a prophet of israel to tell the establishment that they are getting it wrong when they call a fast day to cry out to God says Yoel rip your hearts not your clothes your external manifestations of woe and repentance mean nothing Just as in our generation, the whole concept of Baal Teshuvah has become corrupted. It's even become corrupted to an initial. Because, BT, you know, oh, he's a BT. Because people think that Teshuvah means, oh, next week I'm going to keep Shabbat, I'm going to keep Kashrut, I'm going to go to shul, I'm going to be religious. And that message couldn't be further from what the Prophet Yoel is actually saying. Rip yourself inside, see what sort of person you are. It starts from your reflection as a person about the kind of human being you want to be in relation to others. Only then can you open up a window on the divine. So, your will is very important. And then, of course, in the Triasa we encounter Amos. Amos we're told by historians is technically prior to Hosea as I said Hosea is regard was regarded by the rabbis as a higher level prophet in some ways because the literature and the spiritual levels attained but Amos as a piece of literature is just just I mean I actually I mean and I've read it many times but every time I read it I'm just stunned it's you see our first chapters open with this incredible incredible prophecies not about Israel and Judah well they are about Israel and Judah but primarily they are about all of these other nations around why is that important is because part of this intellectual and spiritual transformation that is happening in these couple of centuries is that the God of Israel is becoming universalized There is now a greater consciousness that God is not simply a powerful God in the Middle East and able to bash up the Egyptians and bash up these ones and do all this stuff here. God and God's call for justice and righteousness is a universal call. We're gonna see this and we saw this later in the later Prophets, you know, in Isaiah Jeremiah, we start to see how this gets translated into the messianic vision and that all the nations are included in God's plan but it has its genesis here in prophets like Amos talking about, and in the context of talking about all these other nations, he also lists Yisrael and Yehuda, meaning that Yisrael and Yehuda at the end of the day might have a special purpose about which they're entitled to feel unique, but they are still nations like other nations, and they will get judged out of that like other nations al says Amos. And he goes through all these nations, "On the three crimes of this nation, you know I could overlook it, but on the fourth, I can't let it go." And he goes and then he says, "On the three sins of Israel, but on the fourth, and what is the great sin of Israel? Al- na alayim, that they sell the righteous person for money, for silver and the poor man for a pair of Jews. As the prophet Michal will tell us later, everybody is just sitting around thinking, how can they screw the other person? And there's no justice. And because of that, Amos, Amos is the first prophet to actually articulate it. What happens? He has a... A series of visions. and visions are made shout, Because God shows Amos he's going to bring this enormous plague of locusts. And Amos stands up and he says, How is the Jewish people going to be able to withstand this? God, the Jewish people is small. You'll wipe them out. And God says, okay, fine. No, we won't do that. Then. And then he shows which is one of the, actually, they talk about the fact that Amos at one level was greater than Hosea because Amos actually got up and tried to defend the Jewish people to God whereas Hosea was kind of like, yeah, whatever. God then shows Amos this enormous wall of fire that is going to come across the land. And once again, Amos says, Umi ya ki And how can, how can Jacob survive that? They're only small. God goes, yeah, fair enough. That's a good point. And then God shows him plumb line in Jerusalem a line of rectitude the line with which the new society will be established in other words it's not going to come by locusts or fire or some great physical devastation but the punishment will actually be born from within its own behavior uh, Amos can't argue against that Amos goes to Beit El He has an encounter with a priest of Beit El, a guy called Amatsya. Amatsya tells him, I mean, Amos was not actually from Israel. He was from the southern kingdom, from a place called Tekoa, we think. It's possibly Tekoa, there's another Tekoa in the north, but more likely Tekoa in the south. He was a shepherd, just minding his own business, and suddenly, bang, told my God to go to the northern kingdom and prophesy. He goes to Beit El. He meets the priest of Beit El, Amatsya, And he starts, Amos starts telling all these messages over Amatsia runs to the king. He says that Amos, this dude, this shepherd, is causing problems. Amatsia says to Amos, go back to Judah if you want to prophesy. We're not interested. This is a well-organized kingdom over here. We don't have time for your prophetic messages. Amos says, well, I've got a prophetic message for you at some point soon. Your wife will be playing harlot in the street. All your kids will be dead. And you yourself will die in exile and this entire place this entire northern kingdom will be destroyed and turned into rubble that was the first pronouncement of the destruction prophetic pronouncement of the destruction of the northern kingdom and so amos amos also gives us some incredible visions once again entering into that stream of consciousness where he imagines what the future could look like and when he does it he does it stunningly so those three there are grouped they were what we would call prior to the whole Isaiah events that go on in the southern kingdom there is one more prophet in this grouping that is placed here it's very very once again like yoel we don't really know when this was written there is a very strong supposition to imagine that the book was written i'm not talking about amos i'm talking about the book of of Vadya. there is a very strong supposition that of is written here and i'll explain why that isn't a sec but it's placed here after amos Because during this time, there is a biblical figure called Ovadia, and so the rabbis like to line that up with him because his message is not completely inconsistent. Ovadia is a book, it's the shortest book in Tanakh, and it's one chapter, and it's about one theme. And that theme is a prophecy, conspiracy theorists love it, because it's a prophecy about one particular nation that particular nation is Edom. And why of course that is fascinating for conspiracy theorists is because Edom, as we know, once you get 500 years further on from here, around about the turn of the millennium, about 2000 years ago, already Edom is characterized and made synonymous with Rome. Once you get a couple of hundred years beyond that, then Edom equals Rome equals Christianity. In fact, the Edomites, as an ethnic projection in history, were roundabout here. They were a kingdom that had itself, in the last few hundred years, gone up and down at various stages. Why, we, why some scholars suspect that Ovadia may actually have been written here is because people were very, very angry with the Edomites following the destruction of Jerusalem because they claimed that the Edomites had actually allied themselves with the Babylonians and were helping themselves to the plunder and the looting and the destruction. Nevertheless, you know, it's a pretty powerful chapter. It's a pretty powerful chapter. Zedon libcha hishiecha, Yoshev b'chag v'isela. You know, your haughtiness has deceived you. And some people think, oh, it's going to be America, because he goes, you know, whether you put your habitation in the stars or whether you put them in the rocks, I'm going to find you, says God, and I'm going to bring you down. Amazingly, also, Avajah contains prophecies about the great exile of, that we have kind of just coming out of now. Where it lists the great destinations of Tzorfat and Sfarad as these two great communal destinations of the Jewish people in exile. Fascinating Book of Adia. And then, of course, still in the kingdom of Jeroboam the second. Still in the kingdom. How are we going for time? Oh, oh, good. Still in the kingdom. We're up to number five. Of Jeroboam II is a prophet that you all know about but I'll still talk about him for a few minutes you all know about him and that of course but maybe until now you haven't necessarily been able to contextually and historically place him and that of course is Jonah, Jonah. and as I'm often fond of saying you know There are very few captive audiences more than Mincha of Yom Kippur in Shul where you don't really have anywhere to go and you've got to listen to the book of Yonah read by some guy who hasn't eaten for 20 hours and like, uh, right, and it's long and you're going, ugh. But bear in mind that what you, and of course we've all heard the story of Jonah from when we were kids, the big fish comes along and eats him. And it's a very simply structured book. It's got four chapters. The first chapter is in a boat. The second chapter is in a fish. The third chapter is in a city. And the fourth chapter is on a hill outside the city, looking over. Basically, it would be a very big mistake to underestimate the depth of the book of Jonah. And to discover that, all you need to do is to ask yourselves the fundamental questions that Yonah is not telling you explicitly but are serious questions why first of all the name of the nation of Israel is not even mentioned in the book he comes from the northern kingdom during the time of Jeroboam why is he asked to go and demand repentance in Nineveh which is the capital of Assyria What is that all about? What was the sin of the Assyrians? So, several things are booming out to us from the text. Number one, here's a prophet that is sent to another nation. Even as we are talking about Hosea and Amos, feeling the need to preach to the nation itself, Yonah is sent out to talk to another nation. Why? One. It's part of the whole project of universalizing God. This transformation of consciousness to realize that God is not some local power. God is universal and demands justice and repentance from all nations. But secondly, of course, as the rabbis tell us, and I haven't heard a better answer, is that why is Yonah sent to the Assyrians and why does he not want to go? Because he knows what's going to happen. He knows that God is only sending him to the Assyrians so that the Assyrians will do repentance to have some level of merit by which they can be the agency of God's punishment of Israel. And that, in fact, is what happens. There have been many, many, very, throughout Jewish history, many, many deep explanations of the book of Yonah The Gaon of Vilna has got this amazing Perush on Yonah where he talks about the descent of the soul into the body. But the Zohar's and and other mystical writings tell us about Yonah in a way that is very, very enlightening. That Yonah is, of course, I mean, what's the meaning of the word Yonah? Dove. Yonah is, of course, the Jewish people. When the Jewish people avoid their mission and their purpose then they go into exile which is represented of course by the fish it's a profound book it's also a profound psychological study you now, if that fourth chapter no one understands the fourth chapter and what's bothering you know, and why he's like kind of you know sitting on this hill looking at the city waiting for it to be destroyed and god doesn't and he actually gets angry with god for not destroying it It's a very deep book now then we move into a new phase of history because in 720 I mean obviously after Jeroboam II everything went very quickly and in a quick couple of decades and it's all over you had a series of Kings and none of them were particularly enduring or good maybe one for a few years but by the time you get to 720 the Assyrians have come and they have vanquished the entire northern kingdom. Now we are focused on the southern kingdom and we are looking at a, the next prophet in the Treasar is a contemporary of Yeshayahu. So whereas Isaiah is this big daddy prophet whose stature and book overwhelm so much of the period of Hezekiah and the, and the salvation of Jerusalem and that whole period, there is another prophet who still is great enough to get a book into the Tanakh, even though he's a contemporary of Isaiah. And of course, I'm talking about the prophet. Look, 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 I'm serious. I know I, know I get excited about all the prophets, but I'm serious. If, I'm serious. If you were to come to me and you would say, David, the world's going to end in five minutes. I haven't got time to read all of the prophets. I just want one that will sum it all up for me. I would say this one. It is, of course, the prophet Micha. Seven short chapters, like a high octane, reduced, turbo version of Isaiah on crack. <laughs> it is. A phenomenal text. A phenomenal text. It encapsulates the whole thing. He starts by looking at the Northern Kingdom and critiquing it in the most remarkable in-depth language so that he sets up the problem. <laughs> Or haboker ya suha kile el yadam. Woe to those who lie in their bed at night scheming about how they're going to screw over another person in the morning and they're going to do it as soon as it's morning light. They're going to get up and do it. Why? Because they can. Because there is no self-limitation of morality or ethics. It is all become about power. He, of course, is talking about Yehuda, As we learn later in the book of Yirmiyahu, who tells us explicitly, tells the, and the crowd are talking about this, remember when Yirmiyahu gives his big speech? And the people go, oh, should we kill him, she'll not kill him, she'll kill him, she not kill him. And someone says, oh, don't you remember back here, the prophet Micha said the same thing to his generation and caused his generation to do Repentance. This is a very, very powerful prophecy. And he talks and Micha tells them, Micha tells them, it's going, you know, Jerusalem is going to turn into rubble stone unless you fix this. But the same prophet is capable of just unbelievable stunningness in his description of how it can be if, israel and the jewish people fulfill their purpose on the land and actually act accordingly many of the amazing messianic prophecies we have come from chapters four and five of micha and then just when you're about to give micha the nobel prize he turns around in chapter six and he just (coughs) because he sums up this whole transformation from what is effectively a pagan conception of God to an ethical, moral, justice, righteousness-based conception of the divine in two sentences or effectively a whole chapter, chapter 6 so if you said to me you don't even have time to read the whole book of Micha I'd say read chapter 6 because people say okay, so you want us to have an authentic relationship with God you want us to be more religious Micha how does that work? What do we do? Does God want thousands of rams with myriads of rivers of oil? Do I get all ceremonial on it? Should I give my firstborn for my sin? Because remember all these different cults that people are talking about, around where people would bring their firstborn and have them sacrificed. Should I bring my children to s- absolve for my sins? But the real point of that question is the answer. It's the next verse. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6. So he says to him, Is this what God wants? No. And then Mika tells you the absolute essence of the entire prophetic tradition in one sentence. He did lecha adam He's already told you, man, what is good. Asot Mishpat. He's already told you. Asot Mishpat, do justice. Ahavat chesed, love of kindness. And just walk modestly or humbly with your God. I just want simple, authentic existence and connection with other people, with the world around you, and with the divine. That's all. It's not power, it's not wealth, it's not ceremonies, it's not rituals, it's not prayers, it's just that. So Micha is stunning. Alright, I spent a bit of time on Micha, but I needed to inculcate that. Now, what's interesting, if you recall, Cheskyahu didn't have very nice children, or grandchildren, and so and ruled for a long time. So this kind of 50 60 years here were a very bad time for prophets or anyone who had a spiritual message that was at variance with the royal agenda and the royal agenda at the time of course was alliance with assyria but bringing in all of the assyrian cults all the cults they set up all these polysyncratic religious sites there wasn't just now worship of baal and and there was worship of every type of gutta you can imagine. And that's why, of course, when we had the Josianic Revolution, it was so extensive, but they had everything going on during this period under Menashe and under Ammon. And so we really only have one prophet from that entire period do we have a prophet who has survived. And he's one of the most unknown prophets because there are no Haftarot from him. And that, of course, it's only three chapters. What is the prophet? The prophet, of course, is Nahum. And Nahum is three chapters. The first chapter speaks about the impending destruction of Assyria. The second chapter speaks about the impending destruction of Assyria. And the third chapter speaks about the impending destruction of Assyria. It's gone. It's going. I mean, this was at the height of the Assyrian Empire influence. It's going to be dust, says Nahum. Because, yes, you were used as an agency here, but you represent nothing. Nothing. And bear in mind, we talk now 27, 2600 years later about the Neo-Assyrians, and we're all very comfortable and cozy watching Foxtel talking about the Neo-Assyrians, but I can tell you, that the Neo-Assyrians were a very serious empire with a god and an ideology. They would have been telling themselves they were there to last for a thousand years. Their arrogance was unbridled. They conquered everything in their path under this unified ideology of Ashur. And there's Nahum going, it's gone, you're destroyed. And he describes it. And we know in other ways that Nahum was written prior to here. And yet he describes how Syria is going to be destroyed. And we know from the sacking of Nineveh in 612 that it was total. And a massive alliance of other nations came to Nineveh. And they fought building to building in their wives. The king dies, commits suicide. Another guy calls himself the king, manages to get out of the city and set up at Haran. We looked at that in the last staggerings of the Assyrian Empire. But it came crashing down here. So, Nahum is a very, very, and the way it's written is really quite amazing. He talks about the panic. He talks about the queen and her attendants, and everybody in the palace is freaking out because, you know, the, the invading armies are getting closer inside the city and there's just bloodshed. They massacred everyone when they went into Assyria. They really did. They did a total job on them. Very, very few people escaped that destruction. And not only that, but Ninveh itself remained effectively uninhabited till today. What's the town on the other side of the Tigris from Nineveh? You've all heard of it because, you know, they're the times no, in which we live. So. We, don't, we, we, no, we, we wouldn't so. have considered ourselves experts on Iraqi geography, but... Yes, Mosul. Yes. Mosul. Yes. Mosul. Mosul. All right. Mosul is very close to where Nineveh was. Now we're entering into the zone of Yeremiyahu. Now we're entering into the next big daddy prophet zone. And so even though the book of Yirmiyahu, which if you recall, covered several kings, right from Yoshiahu, right from Josiah, right through to Zedekiah at the end of the whole temple period, so 40, 50 years of several kings, there were other prophets that were contemporary with Yirmiyahu who were also incredible. And the first of these that we have to talk about is very difficult. Navi is difficult because he wrote a very difficult book, a book that is regarded by many people as one of the deepest theological d- deepest theological digs <laughs> in the whole of spiritual literature of the ancient world. It is a very deep analysis. It's an attempt to try to get to terms with a very particular problem. And the problem for Habakkuk is this. His name is Habakkuk and he's a contemporary of Yeremiyahu. So he's living in the last couple of few decades of the the destruction. He's, He's probably starting sometime during the reign of Josiah, but he can see the remaining uh, demise. There are midrashim about who Habakkuk was and so on, but we'll just stay with the uh, historical figures who understand it biblically in that context, because it's almost definitely written in that context. Habakkuk has a question. And it's a question that emerges from a very deep question about not the problem of suffering per se, because We know that the problem of suffering, the greatest literature of the ancient world on the problem of suffering also comes from the Bible. And that is the book of EOV. But it's on the question of evil. But it's a very specific question. Look at this society, God. Probably the society of Jehoiakim. And it's so corrupt and it's so perverse, and it's so degraded, and good people are getting stuffed over all the time, but you're not doing anything. Like, you're just letting it happen. Why is that? Oh, says God, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. That will show them what I think of their society. And Habakkuk goes, Yeah, okay. But when the Babylonians come, they're going to kill everyone. Like however bad we are, they're worse. It's not like the Babylonians are going to come and they go, Oh, you're righteous. You can go here. You're wicked. You can go there. They're going to schmice everyone. Where's the justice? Where is your Justice. It's pretty full on. I mean, Habakkuk actually has to apologize. There's a whole prayer and apology for God to, you know, because God's given answer and he just doesn't accept it. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to wait until you actually answer me properly. It's like the last guy to leave a press conference. But the second chapter of Habakkuk is actually stunning because God explains to him It doesn't necessarily answer the question. We may have to wait till Tsephania to answer the question, but really, in Habakkuk, the second chapter, here's another wake-up moment. Here's another wake-up moment. What God explains to Habakkuk in the second chapter of Habakkuk. (laughs) Tyranny, in any society, is the seed of its own destruction. The consequences of your actions are already born from the moment you perform them. The ends never justify the means. The means determine the ends. (laughs) Because the stone from the wall will call out. And the beam from the roof, from the wooden beam, will answer it. The very house you built, the very house you built on injustice and corruption will in ultimately be its own destruction. But, which, some rabbis have told us is really the summary of all religious thinking. The righteous person shall live by their faith. The righteous never really die. And their faith and their sincerity and their authenticity, because the fact that we translate the word emunah today as faith is kind of a little bit of a very recent corruption. It's got a much deeper meaning than that that is what a person that's what establishes the life of the righteous person it is inviolable but it's not an easy book habakkuk and you come away from it saying oh this is habakkuk it's supposed to have the big deep theological answers but i'm still feeling hungry and you get to book of tsephania tsephania is another younger contemporary of Yao and habakkuk once again in that generation tsephania begins by telling you that all he sees is destruction it's all coming, it's gone. A bit like Yerim Yahu, in a bad mood. That's what the first peric of Tzifanya looks like. But Tzifanya in chapters 2 and 3 gives us this amazing thing that the other prophets have not yet really touched on. And that's why it's a book for us to keep coming back to. Apart from the fact he gives this ecstatic vision of what it can look like once again, the messianic period when it goes right, when the people shall return. And God will pour on them a pure language so that all people can communicate and worship God authentically together. But He says, the people that will return, that's destruction's coming. It's destruction, it's yuck. But the people that will come back to rebuild the society will be a humble remnant. In other words, there is a purpose to exile, there is a purpose to exile. Exile is where you become refined. Make no mistake, until that point in the ancient world, if you were geschmeist and exiled, your God had lost. But the prophet Sephani is saying, that is not the case at all. You know who's at the head of the Babylonian army, it's God. You know why you have to go into exile, because you have lost your purpose. In exile you shall become refined and specifically humble. Why humble? Because believe it or not, says Zephaniah. As all the prophets have been telling you, it's not about power. It's not about what you think it's about. It's about authentic connection with righteousness and justice. That's what it is. That's God. So is a very big book, all right. I see the time, so I've got three more to do. And what we're going to do now is I have to just go a shtickle historical. Because as you know, sadly, the temple of the Jerusalem was destroyed. None of the efforts of these great prophets, Yirmiyahu, Habakkuk, Safanya could avoid that. And the temple, not only was Jerusalem destroyed, the temple was destroyed. And the people were taken into exile and we're now officially in exile we'd already had the big exile in 597 now we've got another exile in 586 and the Babylonians got on with their business of being the Babylonians and yet just as the prophets had said prophets like Yirmiyahu who predicted that at the height of their power the Babylonians would come crashing down they did In minus 538, in a world-turning event, in a world-turning event of minus 538, the Persians and the Medes, under the leadership of this amazing dude called Cyrus, Koresh, invaded Babylon... Actually, it's quite brilliant. I I, I don't really have time to go into just how he... Some of you may be familiar with how Cyrus actually conquered the city of Babylon, which was, as I think I mentioned in one of the previous weeks, was the most impregnable fortress in the world, how he actually got in there. He actually had tens of thousands of soldiers stand in water so they would dam up the river tributary so that they could go in under the city in one of the water channels. It was a big yomt of that day in Babylon, and they were all kind of parting and whatever. before they even were aware of the invasion the babylonian army was already in the suburbs of the city and it was over cyrus is a different kind of ruler from nebuchadnezzar or anyone previous to him cyrus issues a decree I will allow all the peoples that were vanquished and removed by the Babylonians to return to their native lands and to rebuild their societies. In fact, I'm going to sponsor it. He doesn't just... I mean, it's no wonder that Yeshayahu called Koresh Mashiach in his vision of what would happen that's one of the reasons of course why some people think that some parts of Isaiah were written later because he actually talks about Cyrus or you could say he's a prophet and we it's not just fairy tales we have the Cyrus cylinder in the British Museum we know what it looks like it's there it's this big proclamation now here's the stunning thing (laughs) that included the Jews you can go back and you can go to Jerusalem and you can re-establish your state and you can rebuild the temple It's like the Balfour Declaration on crack, right? You can do it. And not only that, you don't have to wait. I'm telling you now and I'll pay for it as well. I'll sponsor it, do. Gangers on the hate. Go, build. Now, this will come as a big shock. This you will find difficult to understand, is that of that generation, not everybody made Aliyah. There were many, many people In Babylon, who said, we have comfortable homes. We have good schools for our kids. I can't take my BMW with me. Things are okay. I'll support. I'll give money towards the cause. And I'll go to advocacy lunches. But, Aliyah is not for me. Can you imagine the generation that would do that? That would have the stunning chance to go back to the land of Israel and rebuild the homeland of the Jewish people? So about 40,000 go back however and it's tough, it is tough, it is tough and they go back under the leadership of a very unique individual called Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel who was the grandson of Yehoiachin, that king that was exiled in 597 and a guy called Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak who was the grandson of the last Kohen Gadol, of the last high priest. So the grandson of the last king and the grandson of the last high priest, they lead the nation back. And Zerubbabel is appointed by Cyrus and subsequently confirmed by Darius as the governor of this new Yud-Medinata, the state of Judah. It was a Medinata now. It wasn't a kingdom, it was a state. And the Persians had this new great system they brought in where they divided their entire empire into satrapies and each one would have a governor and so he was appointed the governor of what was going to be this jewish state here in jerusalem it was only really a very small state it was only around 25 miles in either direction but it was independent and he was the governor and so long as they paid taxes to the persians and they saluted the flag and they said hi darius with a smile whenever he turned up it was going to be okay now that is the period that is the period of shivatsiyon that is the period of the return from Zion. you know when we when we say the benching right when God returned the captivity of Zion we were like dreamers because we were this was unbelievable. this was stunning. The guy who was the emperor of the Persian Empire I think he was the king of like everything. Says, go back, rebuild it, your captivity is over, and according to all the prophets, this was gonna happen, and we're just like stunned and we come back. But it's tough. So we're in that period. We shift ahead now to round about minus five, sixteen. Nearly twenty years have gone by. Nearly twenty years. We've also had kind of, you know, had some issues with the locals. We've had to confirm whatever, but nearly 20 years have gone by. And suddenly we get a prophet. I'm going to have to go very quickly, I can see. The prophet Haggai. And Haggai is saying, God wants to know why you haven't yet built the temple. The nation is saying, It's not time, but It is time for the house of God to be built. That's the essential message of Haggai. Eventually, Eventually, or not eventually, he rouses all the people and he rouses Zerubbabel and Yehoshua and the people and they go up and God says, look, I know that you're expecting it to be as magnificent as the last one, but I know it's not going to be. Just take some wood and go up there and build it. And when they built it, people are crying because some of them remembered the last one and whatever. And he's saying, look, I know it's it's not like anything, about, but I will be honored in this house. And the eventual history of this house will be amazing and great, says God. The question is, if Jeroboam under Yerim we discovered that we had a problem with our overemphasis on the temple, why are we being told to build the temple? Why is Haggai come along saying, not only that, but the reason your crops aren't working is because you haven't built the temple. This seems to go against the whole grain of what we've been talking about, this transformation about. It's not about the temple. And the real answer is this. Well, what seems to be the case is that what Haggai is arguing for Is balance. Is balance. Your society needs both. It needs an emphasis on your economic well-being and your social relations, but you also need a spiritual center. You need a spiritual center to act as an anchor for your whole project. It's a very interesting book. It takes us really into a new phase and understanding of Jewish history. The other reason is that I've always understood also is that God is effectively saying, you know, you were given permission to come back here by Cyrus on condition that you built the temple. So you've got to build it. So you've got to build it. Because that's why you came back. Alright. Contemporary with Haggai in that whole period of the rebuilding of the second, of the building of the second temple is Zechariah. Now Zechariah is just menang. It's 14 chapters And if you think that you were reading someone's diary of an LSD trip when you were reading Ezekiel, when you come to Zechariah, it's on a whole new level, his visions. Most many of which he himself doesn't understand. He actually says, I'm seeing what I'm seeing, but I've got no idea what it means. If Haggai was concerned, however, about rebuilding the temple... And you really have to realize that I could say a lot. I I once spoke for three days nonstop on Haggai. I gave several lectures on Haggai so we could go a lot deeper into it. But the summary is that Haggai is saying we need to rebuild the temple. Zechariah is saying we need to rebuild the leadership. There are many, 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 many many visions in Zechariah. And that's only just before chapter 9. Once chapter 10 to 14, it is so off the charts that you would actually think you're reading the news from today. All of the phenomenal apocalyptic and messianic prophecies that are amazing come from there. But he's talking about, in the first few chapters, about leadership. His most famous vision, and I'll just give you one so that you can walk away and know, oh, Zachariah, right, that. His most famous vision is of a menorah, on either side of this menorah is an olive tree. The olives are so ripe they are dripping with oil but the oil is going directly into the menorah. So not via any other third party medium. Some of the olives are being picked and then crushed and then pressed and then filtered and then whatever, pasteurized and then poured into nice little vases and the vases are going into the thing and the collecting. It's going straight from the tree into the menorah. What's that? Because <laughs> God says to him, what are you seeing? He goes, I've got no idea what that is. God says, really? I think that's one of my more basic ones. He says, those are the two leaders that i've chosen for this generation and what we're representing here is their true spiritual authentic aspiration which is what what is the essence what is the essence of leadership and guidance and the jewish project of survival and rebuilding what is it it's not with valor and it's not with might, amar Hashem, but with my spirit. My spirit going directly into the light of the generation. A bit like what Hoshea had said, wave ties in beautifully if you look at Hoshea Perik Aleph. Verse 7, and you will see Hosea is saying the same thing all the way back there. That salvation from God has nothing to do with military might. It won't be with horses or chariots or weapons. The Spirit of God is the greatest force in history. And the Jewish people, when they are (coughs) conduits for that light, for that Spirit, nothing stands in their way. Zechariah also gives us in chapter 9, have a look, it's the very big kind of picture of Mashiach and so on, it's very amazing. Alright, and oh my gosh, I'm sorry that I've gone over time, it be one more minute no, on, on this, like, Malachi. Always, always feels like... <laughs> the the last, sorry? He feels like he's always the last one. <laughs> well he's always the last one because he is. <laughs> like that's that hasn't changed for a while. Because Malachi is really sitting in the next generation. And he's the last Navi. He's the last prophet. Not only his last prophet, he knows it's ending with him. The second temple period is not going to be a period of prophecy, of open prophecy as we've seen it before. He's the last one of official Nouveau speaking the words of God. And he is an amazing prophet to have at the end. Some people read him and go, oh, I don't understand why he would come at the end and his message. But if Haggai is talking about rebuilding the temple and Zachariah is talking about rebuilding the leadership, Malachi is talking about rebuilding yourselves. Malachi comes along. So the rabbis actually have a big discussion. I always think it's very interesting. The rabbis have this discussion about whether Malachi is Ezra whether they are in fact the same person. And the reason I find that fascinating is because if universities professors were having that discussion about whether Malachi is Ezra, the rabbis would call them Apikorsim. <laughs> but because the rabbis are having it, they're allowed to have it. Maybe Malachi is Ezra. But he comes along and the temple is already up and running, but Malachi is actually not happy with the way it's going. He doesn't like the way the sacrifices are going. He doesn't like the, what the priests are doing. And once again, you say to yourself, well, why would he worry about the technicalities of that? I thought the whole message that we learned coming out of here was that it's not about sacrifices, it's not about ceremonies or rituals. But Malachi is actually saying something deeper than that. He's saying, if you are going to have a ceremonial and ritual, religious, spiritual center for your existence, make sure it's authentic. Why are you bringing sheep to the temple that you wouldn't give to the governor? Because they aren't of that quality. If you're going to have a relationship with the divine that is based on ritual, make sure it's authentic and that it is a reflection of your inner values. But famously, the last, it's the last chapter. It's the last chapter of Malachi, which is the last chapter of the Nevi'im, which is really the big uber Because he tells you, Zichru Torah Moshe Avdi, Remember the Torah of Moshe. Go back and read the Torah of Moshe, everything the prophets have been saying. And he reiterates, he reiterates the message of Zechariah from God. Shuvah Elayva, Shuvah alechem. Return to me and I shall return to you, says God. Do that inner transformation of Teshuvah. The world will change and God will come down into the world. God will be closer and more revealed in the world. It really depends on you. And you can see and also you know as I mean I was angry with your father says God and we, the whole concept of Jewish history is this attempt to understand my relationship with you but Malachi says right at the end he says you know what after me there's no more prophets for a long time and you'll know when prophecy comes back says God through the pro- Malachi because I will send someone. And that person will be Elijah. Elijah. That is the whole origin of why we know that the Messianic period is preceded by the prophet Elijah. I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet doesn't come then prophecy is not yet restored I'm going to send Elijah the prophet is going to come back and what is he going to do says Malachi in the stunning finale of the whole of the prophetic tradition what is Elijah the prophet going to do when he comes back how stunning how stunning He's going to return the hearts of the parents to their children and of the children to their parents. The intergenerational reconciliation that the Jewish people will have an understanding of their past and their future, of who they are. They will return to their authentic sources the way they return to themselves and realise they are not merely a cultural club. As all of the prophets telling us, as Hoshea was telling us, as Amos was definitely telling us, you're no better than anyone else. You really aren't. But you are part of a continuum that was chosen by God because of a covenant made with your ancestors. I'm gonna bring you through history and you're gonna survive it by my spirit. And you are going to survive it until you achieve your objective in the world, which is to bring about the phenomenal acknowledgement of the divine in the world by all nations, because all nations will reflect justice and righteousness, and you are going to lead the way. That is your path through history, and you can only come about it by realizing where you came from and where you are going and who your ancestors were, and who your children will be, and what message and value will they inculcate. If you're going to come back to the land of Israel, and you're going to rebuild it, you have to build it on principles that reflect your purpose in the world. You are not just another nation. You are Ami, says God. My people, as reflected also in When we looked at and hoshea so those are the treas that massive journey and i urge you to go and read it i also kind of congratulate you for those of you who've sat through the last three or four weeks uh, and i really really have appreciated talking to you about all these issues and i hope i haven't frightened any of you from looking at the books but i urge you to become acquainted with the prophetic tradition of israel so that when you either read a haftarah or you are simply wanting to reconnect with who you really are and who the Jewish people really are and what their essential values are in order to reformulate them for our own world, then you know where to find them. So thank you for listening to that.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.